This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm Marilyn Barefoot. Today, my guest is Heather Marshall. Heather Marshall has just released her debut novel, Looking for Jane. This novel shines a light on a very dark spot in Canadian history, the maternity home system, where over 300,000 Canadian girls and women, primarily teenagers, had their babies taken from them by coercion or force. Now, not only do Heather and I talk about her book, but we also focus on the fact that the government needs to be held accountable for this. They need to issue a formal apology to these 300,000 women and their children who were so traumatized by what happened to them. Looking for Jane is a very brave novel that focuses on a lot of things that women don't talk about or feel that they can even talk about. Please welcome my very brave guest and author of Looking for Jane, Heather Marshall. Today, I have the utmost pleasure and joy to be interviewing and chatting with Heather Marshall. Now, Heather Marshall, born and raised in Toronto, Canada, has written the most gripping, fantastic book called Looking for Jane. Please welcome my guest, Heather Marshall. Round of applause. (laughs) Hello. Good afternoon. So lovely to have you with us. So Looking for Jane is your debut novel. Am I correct with that? That's right. It's actually not the first one I ever wrote, but it's the first one to be published. Okay. So there's something in the closet that is, is simmering, yeah. maybe <laughs> still going to come out and be published, maybe? You know what? I, I don't I don't think so. I mean, never okay. say never, but I think it's um, kind of that practice novel that a lot of authors have where you're kind of ironing out the kinks, finding your voice, learning what works and what doesn't. So there's some parts of it that I think are really beautiful and I'm very proud of, but the overall product, I think, is probably not quite market ready. But that's okay. Okay. It's um, kind of nice that that one's just mine. Yeah. Absolutely. So looking for Jane, talk to our audience, talk to me, because I'm holding it in my hand like my best friend. What's this about? What's this about, Heather? Because you'll do a much better job of talking about what this is about than I ever will. For me, and I think for, for many readers, and I touch on this a little bit in the author's note, but the book is about motherhood and many facets of motherhood. I tried to sort of 
braid in as many threads as I, I possibly could into that narrative. And, um, you know, ostensibly, it's about uh, abortion and women's sort of, you know, uh, fight for the right to control their bodies over the decades. But all of that traces back to the sort of theme of motherhood and wanting to be a mother and not wanting to be a mother and what I like to call sort of all that gray area in between. And that at different times in your life, you might feel quite differently about the prospect of motherhood. And uh, I wanted to sort of show those nuances in the book. And I think, um, as you were saying before we started recording, it's kind of, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of readers are saying about the book is that they can find some piece of their own experience in that. So I think that's one of the reasons it's resonating so strongly, uh, stronger than I thought it would, is that... um, yeah, there's something in there that most readers can relate to with regard to motherhood. It's a brilliant book. Oh, thank you. So Heather, I wanted to go to how did this happen? Because you didn't enter the world as all I've ever wanted to do was be a writer. So maybe we could go back and talk about your schooling and your two master's degrees and how you came to write Looking for Jane. Well, it's funny because I didn't sort of come into the world wanting to be a writer, but at the same time, I kind of did. Like I was always a writer as a kid, um, writing stories about squirrels and that kind of thing. And uh, it was sort of something that I picked at and I journaled a lot in my teens, as a lot of people do, as kind of an outlet. And then I got into the academic stream with school. And when I graduated, it was just after the uh, 2008 crash. So we were all kind of panicking going, oh boy, these jobs that we thought for me, probably in sort of the public service um, sector had been shrunk enormously um, by the government that was in at that time. So we were a bunch of poli-sci and history grads going, oh my gosh, what are we going to do with our lives? So at that point, I knew I wanted to do a master's degree in history. And that was for me. Um, That wasn't for job prospects necessarily. That one was just for me. And when I was doing that degree, I wrote a paper on the uh, provincial court battles that Henry Morgenthaler undertook in sort of the 70s and 80s in the years leading up to the Supreme Court decision in 88 that decriminalized abortion in Canada. And when I was doing that research, I was down in the bowels of the U Waterloo Library, uh, going through all the microfiche, looking at all the old newspaper articles, which was, I mean, for me, that's a blast because I'm a nerd about that kind of thing. And when I wrote the paper, I just thought, you know, there was something kind of niggling at me, like, this would be a really good novel. Like, it's just so compelling and not in an exploitative way, but it's very dramatic. Like there was just so much going on um, that would, you know, there was a lot of meat there for a really good novel. And with historical fiction, particularly, I think um, people who write it are this type and people who consume it generally tend to be as well, where you're looking to be both entertained and educated about something. So I thought that would just be such a great way to educate people in a more sort of consumer-friendly way about this history. Because even as a feminist, raised by feminists and someone who is writing a paper about these things, there were surprises for me. Um, You know, I always knew pretty much in my lifetime that abortion was legal. Anytime I would have needed one, it was legal and Mm -hmm. accessible where I live. Um, You know, but that was not always the case. So I did that paper 
and had that idea and then sort of thought no more about it, went on to the master's in political science. Um, and again, also my, my bent was always toward women's issues in political science as well. And after that, I got involved in politics and I worked at uh, all three levels of government, municipal, provincial and federal and was kind of a one of those political staffers. I refer to myself as a recovered political staffer. I think <laughs> it's uh, it has an expiry date for a lot of people. You can sort of do it while you're young, and you can go through that meat grinder. But there comes a point where you you kind of need to move on, and it can be a bit um, taxing on the soul, shall we say? But while I was uh, still working in politics through something else completely unrelated, I stumbled across an article on the maternity home system from, I think, the National Post back in 2012 or something like that, and was just completely horrified. And I thought, you know, homes for unwed mothers, I had heard about them just kind of in the ether, you'd hear references to them, but I never really gave much consideration to what that meant or that there were very real women, girls, um, who attended them and were deeply traumatized by them. And I think when I was younger and heard about homes for unwed mothers, you know, to be honest with you, I think um, in my sort of more narrow worldview, when I was, say, a teenager in my early 20s, you think, oh, someone screwed up their life and ended up in a home for unwed mothers, you know, and I didn't really give much thought to how horrendous that entire experience start to finish might have been for that girl who probably didn't make a bad decision. Something terrible may have happened to her that she had no control over. So as I got older um, and more wise and aware of the world, um, that whole concept of the maternity homes just became increasingly horrifying and even did more so. And we can maybe get to that later, but after I became pregnant with my own baby and again, sort of coming across this article and being completely horrified by it as someone who is a feminist and is, you know, a student of history, the fact that I had never come across this led me to think, what are the odds that the average person in Canada is even aware that this happened? And then when I came across the um, statistic that uh, researcher Valerie Andrews uh, collected through extensive amount of research on her part, that over 300,000 women, she thinks it may actually be closer to 350 or even 400,000. Hers is a conservative estimate. But when I saw that number, I it was just so staggering to me. And I thought, again, I think I would want to read a novel about this. I would like to be informed about this. And at that point, I had finished my first uh, manuscript and it was not getting picked up by agents or editors. So I was looking for a new topic at that time for a new book. And that one sort of dropped into my lap. And so I'd been sort of picking away at the idea for this book about the history of abortion and reproductive rights access for Canadian women and then this other idea about the maternity homes. And I thought they were two separate books. And then one day I was floating around in the tub, which is where a lot of my good ideas come to me. And I think this might have been in, in the, uh, the letter that accompanied your advanced reader copy. But it just clicked for me that the whole theme was, you know, agency over your own body. That the girls in the maternity homes were there due to lack of information and education about their own bodies and their own reproductive systems and how to prevent pregnancy. And then what happened to them there, they were completely stripped of any and all agency over their own body. 
and people seeking abortions or seeking agency over their own body. So once that clicked for me, I just started writing the book and I didn't stop. And it just very much sort of flowed out of me. Um, I think I've said elsewhere, there were times where like, there actually isn't a whole lot of me in this book. And I think in a lot of debuts there, there tends to be. Um, and for me, with all these women's stories and all the interviews I did and the research I did, I really felt a bit more like I was kind of a conduit for these stories. Like I felt like I was telling other women's stories. So that was how the book came to be. And then I sent that off to agents. And my previous experience with pitching my book to agents was to just hear nothing or hear, oh, we like it, but no. And um, so I got a lot of interest in the first few hours of sending it out. And uh, it was picked up within two days by my agency in uh, London, UK. And uh, a few months later, we we got our book deals. So that was um, all pretty thrilling. And now a couple of years later, here we are. And thank goodness. There were a lot of people who had to believe in it for it to get here into readers' hands. And I'm equally grateful to them. Yeah. And it's a brave subject. This is a brave subject. Because as I was doing my research, certainly nothing compared to what you've done, getting two master's degrees and digging down into this particular subject matter or matters. Uh, Women, you know, traditionally, we didn't talk about this. It wasn't talked about in society. It wasn't something that you go over to your neighbor's house and have a coffee and have a conversation about abortion, yours or anybody's for that matter, or your ability to access one or not access one. And yes, you're 100% right. I learned a ton. As a kid, I'll tell a little, little story here if it's okay with you because it's not mm-hmm. about me. As a kid, as a young kid, we uh, my grandma was in a long-term care facility. And every Sunday we would go and pick her up and she would spend the afternoon with us. We'd have our Sunday dinner and then we'd take her back. Well, as an adjunct to that long-term care facility was a home for unwed mothers. That's how old I am. And I remember my mother like badging these people. Oh, that's a home for unwed mothers. Like they were some kind of, it was some kind of a disease that you couldn't get close to these people. And I remember as a young kid, like I must've been under 10 years of age, you know, peeking out the window and saying, oh, is that one? Is that one over there? I had no idea until reading Looking for Jane about maternity homes, about the fact that over 300,000 women slash mostly teenagers were put in these situations and and their babies were taken from them. And, and the trauma that the women felt is so palpable in your book. I mean, I was crying because I could feel their grief and their sadness about their babies being literally wrenched out of their arms and taken away. And when you think about even just the age that they were at, you know, again, most of them in their teens, some kind of early twenties, maybe late twenties, maybe. And, you know, the emotional maturity that you have at 16 is just in, it's in no position to even attempt to cope with that. And the fact that they were then told to go home and forget that it ever happened and never talk about it. Like when you put a present day lens on that, 
right? It's just, it's unspeakable. Um, and this happened to at least 300,000 women. So 300,000 women or more, as yeah. we had referenced, this is a Canadian number? That's right. That's terrifying. Yeah. And so I also read that because you were a recovered political person, <laughs> staffer. The Maternity Home Justice Project is something that you're espousing. In other words, holding the government's feet to the flames, if you will, around this happened. And what are you doing about it in terms of issuing an apology or making these women, quote unquote, whole again? Can you talk to us, the audience, a little bit about this? And if people are inclined, how they can support you to, to make this happen? Absolutely. So um, it, it, first of all, sort of begins with um, a woman who I just referenced not long ago, Valerie Andrews. And she is a survivor of one of the maternity homes. And she founded an organization called Origins Canada. And they essentially, I mean, there's um, a lot of support programs available, but it essentially helps reunite these women with their children. And they've been around for quite a while. But she also does an extensive amount of lobbying work. And it was through her efforts and those supporting her that she was able to get the government to even look at this issue, which they did in 2018. They struck a special Senate committee to study this. And they heard from survivors and their children, the ones that were willing to come forward and speak, which you have to appreciate is the smallest fraction there are women who have passed and never told anyone about this. There are women who are now in their 70s, 80s, 90s, who are only just starting to speak about it. Trying to get some of those women to come to Parliament Hill to lobby, you can imagine how difficult that is. So it's a very small percentage of these survivors that are able to, to do this lobby work. But they got the government to, to study it. So they held these uh, committee hearings and they, they were essentially victim impact statements was what they heard. And after that, they put together a report called The Shame is Ours. And in that report, um, it acknowledged that the federal government was in part responsible through funding to these maternity homes. They were administered by generally churches, but funded by both the provincial and federal governments, but primarily the federal government. And they said, yes, we are, we are culpable for this. And there were a number of recommendations they made that the government could, you know, uh, things the government could do to try to provide some measure of justice for the survivors. And among those was to issue a formal apology in the House of Commons. And we're, I mean, we're fairly familiar with formal apologies now. Uh, many have been issued under the current prime minister and the one before him and before him. And, you know, for, for, <laughs> Very compelling reasons. Canada has a, a horribly pockmarked history of um, abusing its citizens and those who are not citizens. And so, you know, I I really feel that this apology is the least they can do. The Senate committee gave them a year in which to respond to those recommendations. That was in 2019, and it's now 2022, and there has been no formal apology. Now, Valerie Andrews is still in touch with a couple of the senators and some others on Parliament Hill, uh, has occasional meetings, but there's been absolutely like just such little forward motion for quite a while now. And 
there is a part of me, you know, I've worked in politics. I understand how the timelines work, how the priorities work. Um, you know, obviously the crisis in Ukraine, the pandemic, there are a number of things that have kept the government quite busy. But I also know that this is the kind of thing that takes a speechwriter two hours to pull together the day before and a half an hour for the prime minister to deliver in the House of Commons. So despite how busy the government may have been over the past few years, given the scope of this tragedy, scandal, whatever you would like to call it, and the fact that a lot of those survivors are starting to pass on, Mm. um, time is running out. And I'm just um, completely appalled that we have not seen this apology yet. So I have been in touch with Valerie. We've been sort of working together and trying to figure out sort of what other angles we can use. But my my hope and my goal is to leverage the momentum from looking for Jane and the reader outrage into pushing that um, all of all of her all of her work over the finish line to get that apology. So I, I can't emphasize enough every time I do an interview when I talk to readers, post on social media. Um, I've become a bit of a polite troll to Justin Trudeau on Twitter (laughs) every time I post something about the book going, just a reminder, I haven't had that apology yet. Um, But my hope is that readers will get engaged and email their MPs and express their outrage because another thing I know from working in politics is that, you know, enough squeaky wheels can actually get some attention on an issue. So um, that is my hope. That is my wish, my plea to readers, if they were touched by the book, to to please take some action and try to help elevate these women's voices to get them that apology. And so what is the best way for our listeners, our audience to take action with you on on your behalf for the Maternity Home Justice Project? Is it a website? Is it how, how can how can they best activate and support you? I mean, um, any way is great, but uh, I do have some resources on my website, which is heathermarshallauthor.com forward slash justice. And there's a bit of background there on the maternity home system, some news articles, some that I accessed during my research and others that have cropped up since. Um, the Senate report is there and it's actually quite um, quite readable and user friendly. It's not kind of the usual uh, political ease that they tend to write in. And it only takes a couple of minutes to read through that report and get an understanding of the findings to provide a bit more context. And then I've also actually got a sample email if readers do want to just cut and paste. And there's a link there to find your MP's contact information. I've tried to make it as easy as possible for readers to find their MP and send off that email. Um, Because I've, yeah, I've monitored the inbox of an MP. And I know that when you start seeing a lot of the same one, that does get sort of sent up the line and these things can get flagged. So I'm hoping that enough volume might, um, might get this flagged again. So that's, you know, that's a great way that readers can get involved, but um, also Twitter. I mean, it can be um, a bit of a toxic wasteland and I would encourage readers to be uh, respectful and courteous in their messaging. But that is something also that um, gets politicians attention is, is tweets. So, you know, um, express your outrage, let them know how you're feeling about this and you are, you're a voting constituent. They should care about your opinion on this and, it's, um, again, the least we can do, I think, as readers who have been touched by this issue to to help get these women their apology. Absolutely. Before we started recording, Heather, I was saying Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, somebody that is featured in the book, um, 
starting his clinics in Montreal and then eventually being incarcerated for 18 months. And he also had a clinic in Toronto. And I actually met with him when I took my sister there um, for an abortion, which was under some pretty not lovely circumstances in terms of how she became pregnant. So, so he was an incredible, incredible human in terms of understanding that women should have the right to make the choice, but, you know, walking through the protest signs and the horrible visuals that they put on the protest signs, it just, I didn't, I didn't understand and and where this is going is you have on your timeline that I was fascinated to learn about that in 1869, Canada formally bans abortion. And then in 1945, the maternity homes start to open. And I mean, based on your research, and I'm sure you've just waded through thousands of microfiches files and everything, did parents of teenagers just say, you have to go away to this place and we'll deal with it and you'll come back and rejoin all your classmates at school? Generally, yes. Yeah, it was um, parents combined with often priests. A lot of the homes were were Catholic. And they just said, this is, you know, you've been a bad girl, but if you would like to try to redeem yourself, you could be a good girl and give up your baby. And that's that's just what you do. And again, when you sort of, put yourself back into those, those mindsets. It, it seems horrifying for us today and was horrifying then, but was um, socially acceptable. Girls didn't question it. They didn't understand. They weren't told by social workers, by their priest, their parents, that they had rights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't have to go to the maternity home. They didn't have to give their baby up. That was not any kind of law or regulation that was the individual maternity homes sort of policy. They just got railroaded. There were girls that did succeed in keeping their babies. They were very, very few. Um, I don't know if they, like, quite frankly, managed to escape in some way or were just stubborn enough and had vaguely supportive parents that were maybe willing to raise the child as a much younger sister or something like that. But, um, yeah, it was uh, all the authorities that they were meant to trust conspired against them to strip them of any kind of agency. And like in that time period, it was actually the recorded death toll from back alley abortions got so high. And that was what led to the sort of vague legalization in 1969, where a woman could get an abortion if a therapeutic abortion committee of male doctors approved her for it. And that was only if her life and health or the baby's would have been in danger. So incredibly restricted circumstances. But that was that was the recorded death toll from back alley abortions. There were all kinds that would have never been recorded. Women who barely survived, as you say, were permanently sterilized, permanently scarred, um, disabled from them. So Crazy. when you think of it, that's what it took to get some kind of loosening of that law. And then a lot of women didn't qualify. The abortion committee said no, they resort to other means. So there were underground networks like the the composite that I've written about, the Jane network, where doctors were willing to do it. Henry Morgenthaler was doing it when it was illegal and he was very vocal about it, which was why he ended up in prison. But he 
you know, decided to die on that sword that was important enough to him. I think he was um, like a true humanist, what we would call a, a humanist. And others were much quieter about it, um, but it was hard to even access that. You had to know someone who knew someone who knew someone. And as you were saying before, these things weren't talked about. Now, you know, maybe a sister or maybe a best friend, you might whisper about it. I've gotten into trouble. But the advice would have been go to a maternity home or will he marry you or, or, or. Yeah. Options were incredibly limited. And Heather, what did the maternity homes, I would say, do with the baby? So was it, were they sold to families or were they adopted out or did both scenarios take place? They ran the gamut. And um, the research that I did, prim- I did a little bit of research into the Magdalene laundries in Ireland as well, but it was primarily North America. So my sources were American and Canadian. And yes, pardon me, American and Canadian, not Mexican. But um, it, yeah, there, there's some things I don't know how graphic you would like me to be on the podcast, but babies were sold. Um, they were adopted out many were adopted into loving homes and reunited with their birth mothers later in life. And they found that they, you know, they were very much wanted as adopted children and that's all wonderful, but they should never have been available for adoption in the first place. Um, if those girls did not want to give them up for adoption, some did absolutely. Uh, but many did not. And yeah, the, the treatment there was, um, you know, there was systemic sexual, verbal, a lot of emotional abuse. Um, a lot of the abuse and violence happened at the hospital as well with um, nurses who were very punitive. Uh, girls having their heads covered so they would not see their baby being born. Uh, Painkillers being withheld um, before they would sign adoption papers. I touch on this a bit in the author's note, but when I did the research for this book, the the reality was so shocking to me. And I did, um, I, I wondered at one point how realistic I should be, because mm-hmm. especially when you write historical fiction, you know, you have to make decisions for how close you're going to stay to the historical record and where you're going to take artistic license and so forth. And I had to really do some soul searching there and sort of consider what the market was willing to bear um, in terms of the story I was telling, but I really, if I was going to tell it, I wanted to tell it accurately. I wanted to make sure I got it right because I felt a responsibility to the survivors to not downplay or in any way sort of, um, exploit their experience, um, make it sound better or worse than it was for the sake of the book. Um, so I was threading a fairly fine needle there, but, I've heard from several survivors since writing it. Um, It's been a bit of an emotional ride, even afterward, more than I thought it would have been. And um, I'm I'm very pleased and humbled, but they've um, exclusively said, you know, you you really got it. This this part of it was very similar to my experience, but not the whole thing or the entire thing was my experience. Um, So I was very glad to hear that because I wanted to make sure that they were honored in this book and that it gave them some kind of voice that they hadn't had previously and shone some light on it. Um, you know, there are baby women reading the book who were survivors and have never told their families. So 
reading it is a pretty emotional experience for them as well. You handled that so beautifully in the novel, in the book about the hospital experience. It was very visual in my mind. I could picture it. And I didn't go through that. I never was in one of those places, but I could feel it. Was this going on in the United States as well, Heather, as far as you know? Yes. I think in the States, um, a lot of them were run by churches, but I think the Salvation Army, if Mm. I recall correctly, had a number of them as well. And another organization that was sort of semi-denominational that I don't actually recall off the top of my head, but they were they were prevalent. They were everywhere. And is your book for sale in the United States yet? Or uh, We actually just got an American deal a couple of weeks ago. Yep. So it'll be published there sometime next spring, I believe. Okay. Spring of 2023. That's right. Okay. Fantastic. We'll see what the reception's like. <laughs> exactly. But people need to read this. They definitely need to read this. Um, Before I go down a different road, you referenced a baby, you referenced a pregnancy for yourself. Um, Are you a mother or did you choose not to be a mother? I am a mother. That was a very, very happy thing for me, becoming pregnant. That was a meticulously planned choice, Um, but it didn't escape me um, how fortunate I was that that could be a choice and I could do that exactly when and how I wanted to. Well, and I think living through it and, and, and feeling, you know, going through a pregnancy makes you relate to these characters that you created in such a, in such a different way. It's interesting. I wrote the book before like my husband and I were planning an eventual family, but that wasn't sort of um, on the front burner at that point. And so I did a lot of interviews with women to get their take on their experiences of pregnancy, childbirth, and motherhood. And obviously, everyone's are very different, one to the next, or one pregnancy or birth to the next. Um, But I wanted to kind of get a collection and then choose what I was going to use for my characters. And so I was a degree removed from it at that point. And then I became pregnant when we were doing the editing process. So obviously reading it again, everything hit quite differently. And I was able to sort of pepper in a few of my own experiences to the final draft, which was nice. And then when we were finishing up the last of the edits um, was when my baby was very new. And um, without getting too much away for people who haven't read the book yet, but I was editing a scene where uh, mother's saying goodbye to her child. And I was on that like postpartum hormonal cocktail where you're crying at the drop of a hat or just because a hat didn't even drop. You looked at the hat and you started to cry. And I was just holding my baby sobbing and it still hits me every once in a while. Um, Right before the book was released, I kind of had a moment with my little one where I just thought, oh, those poor girls. And it just, there was something joyous that I'd experienced. And I thought, I can't imagine wondering about missing all of those joyous experiences and spending every day wondering what they're doing, if they're safe, if they're warm. You worry about all that enough when you're the one in care and control of your child. I can't imagine um, being that removed from it and spending all of my time wondering. And then again, adding the layer of, Don't ever tell anyone. Don't ever talk about this. 
So I've said to my husband, like, it's interesting, but I'm glad that the timing lined up the way it did. Cause I said, I don't know. Cause parenting, I mean, becoming a parent, it really does change you. Like there's even stories in the news that aren't even directly related to children that will, you know, make tears spring to my eyes because something bad has happened to a person and that person is someone's child. And so it really does, um, it changes you in a way you can't fully appreciate until it happens. But I said to my husband, I don't know that I could have written this book now. Like I might've just not been able to handle the research um, that was required for it. Um, I think I needed to have that little bit of distance on it. Obviously I was very compassionate and horrified and moved, um, but I think it would have been different now. So I'm glad that I wrote it when I did. The universe lined up perfectly for you on this one. Absolutely. So Heather, I've also read that you have a great emotional, maybe physical too, relationship with the UK. (laughs) I do. I'm an Anglophile. I just, I just love them. Um, Well, not everything. The politics right now leaves something to be desired, but, uh, but English culture generally, they're sweets. Um, I travel to the UK whenever I can, and I love to eat there. I just love to be in the UK. And your ha- your book is available in England. Have you? It is. Got, yes. That's I read somewhere that that you'd been picked up in the UK. Yes. <gasps> that's why the cover's different. I was yes. like, why am I seeing two different covers? The one I have yeah. and the one I'm seeing online. And I love that they're so different. I think, and yeah. the one in Brazil is also astoundingly different. I think it's fascinating to see each designer's take on the mood and the feel of the story. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and so do you have to pitch to each of these countries to say, hey, this is what I'm doing. And would you like to publish it in England, in Brazil? So my agency does that and they are phenomenal. Um, They do so much hard work. And since the book came out, uh, we actually got picked up in the US, uh, France and Italy. And we already had deals for Brazil and the Netherlands. So it's out in Brazil and I think it comes out in the Netherlands sometime later in the year. I want to say August or October. Um, But abortion is illegal in Brazil, like, like very, very illegal, not allowed. Um, so it's a bit of a political statement, I think, for that book to be published there. And it's um, causing a bit of a stir from what I understand. Those women have been fighting for a very long time to to get to secure their rights. So um, again, hopefully that helps spur some important conversations. I'd be, you know, thrilled if that helped them get there. But, um, you know, I'm sure it's, again, hitting very differently what's historical fiction for us, the women going to see back alley abortionists um, and underground abortion networks providing safe abortions is happening in Brazil every day in 2022. That's huge. That's a huge statement that Brazil would even quote unquote, allow this (laughs) material, this book to be sold when I didn't realize, but of course, I guess the, the background is it's a Roman Catholic faith primarily in Brazil. So that all lines up and makes sense. Yeah, like I think women have to go to neighboring countries. I don't, again, know off the top of my head which neighboring countries right. do have access. But again, that just eliminates the possibility for women who don't have the means to travel or who can't because of an abusive partner who can't find out about it or any number of barriers. Wow. Wow. 
What's next for you, Heather? I actually just submitted the first draft of my next novel to my editors. Um, and as I've said, I've joked, like, please pray for them. It's it's way too long. <laughs> We're going to have to edit it down significantly. We'll see how long they'll, uh, they'll allow it to be. But I tend to be wordy. And that's one of the things they help me with is to trim it down a little bit. But uh, so that should be hitting shelves around this time next year. Can you give us a little hint about what it's about? Because I'm now so fascinated to get a little bit of something (laughs) from it. It's also historical fiction. And um, it's funny. I actually, I was casting around for an idea for the next book. And this was part of a two book deal that my agency negotiated. So um, Canada, the UK and Brazil preemptively bought the rights to the second book. And um, so I was casting around for an idea and I like sort of uncovering untold stories or undertold stories. And I didn't set out to write a World War II novel um, because there's there's I mean, there's so much good content there already. There's a lot of authors that do it very, very well. And um, so I didn't really intend to, but I came across this uh, real life person named Mona Parsons. And you can Google her afterwards if you like, but she was, um, to the best of our knowledge, the only Canadian civilian woman to have been uh, imprisoned and sentenced to death by the Nazis during World War II. She and her husband were in the Netherlands and they were assisting downed Allied airmen uh, to get to safety. And she was just such a badass and was never in my history books. Um, there's a statue erected for her out on the East Coast, and that's about it. There's one researcher who dug into her life and and wrote a book about her. But I just thought I'd really like to shine a spotlight on this Canadian woman. So that was sort of what led me to write a World War II story was just that that was, um, that was her story. So it doesn't follow her life exactly, but it's heavily inspired by her. And um, it's also in multiple perspective, uh, intergenerational novel, which I just love writing. I love um, the experiences of women at different phases of their life and what they can learn from one another uh, as intergenerational friendships and and that kind of thing. And I think readers enjoy that too. So yeah, hopefully people will like it. It's, uh, it's pretty exciting. And I'm currently now kind of while I wait for my revisions to come back, um, doing some research for my next one after that. Um, I can't not be working on something book related, like I'm researching or <laughs> promoting or writing or something. And uh, so I've got a few ideas for that that I need to narrow down. Uh, my agent, bless her, I'll be pitching her all kinds of ideas constantly. Like, what about this? What about this? What about this? <laughs> She's like, okay, we have to pick one. Calm down. So it's a good problem, but I've got to uh, isolate the next one and we'll go from there. It seems like this is just the perfect storm for you, though, Heather. In terms of master in political science, master in history, but always deep down sort of the itch to be the storyteller, to be a writer. So when you're diving and doing historical fiction, you get all of the history, political science dive in terms of doing the research, but then you get the storytelling to be able to weave it all together in a way that's educating the world. How fantastic. It's pretty wonderful that I get to do what I do. And I mean, I I am a writer by nature and I enjoy doing this by nature. Like, I think even if I weren't getting published, I'd probably still be writing in some capacity, even just for my friends and family. But um, it's been a dream and I'm just 
thrilled that it's worked out the way it has. I'm so grateful to everyone who's picked up the book and my agents, my editors, all the people working behind the scenes doing things I don't even know about. Um, my publicist, who you know, you've been in touch with about this kind of promo. Like they've all believed in the book from the beginning, and you know, success doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like this is a this is a team success for myself and my family and everyone that's worked on the book who've all supported me along the way. So it's, um, yeah, I feel quite, uh, quite blessed that I get to do this. How can and where can people buy Looking for Jane? I always um, love when people go to independent bookshops, um, depending on what city you live in. Those are sometimes more numerous and sometimes not, but try an independent bookshop. Um, Amazon, Indigo, Costco, it was the uh, both the Costco and Indigo picks for March. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of buzz around them at those retailers, which was very exciting. Uh, I've seen it out in the wild at Shoppers Drug Mart and Walmart. People have been sending me photos <laughs> um, from various places. So um, it's thrilling to say that. But yeah, pretty much wherever you can find books, you should be able to find Looking for Jane. So fantastic. Are you doing a book tour? Is there, is there, you know, going to various book signings, traveling the world? Is that, is that happening? It's not. It's um, obviously yeah, the launch with the pandemic and everything. It's been a little bit different than I had originally uh, hoped and envisioned. But um, with my little one just being a year, I don't know that I necessarily would have been packing my bags and hitting the road for a, a big book tour, um, even if it weren't a pandemic. But um, I'm doing lots of virtual events and, and those are good. I'm looking forward, though, to a time where we can be doing in-person signings and, um, you know, writers conferences, that kind of thing. And it's an excuse to go to the UK at some point. <gasps> yeah. I said to my husband back when we first got our book deals in oh, was June or summer of 2020, and I said, oh, this will be long done by March 2022. We'll go to the UK. It'll be great. We'll make it a whole trip and stuff. Uh, yeah, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe the greatest of plans. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. That's okay. We're riding it out. Fantastic. Heather, what have I not talked to you about? What was a message that was in your head that you said, gee, I really hope that Marilyn asks me this question, or I really want to make sure that Marilyn's audience on Breaking Brave hears about this. What did I miss? I think the big thing that I've really been trying to push with every interview is to to ask readers to get engaged um, and to email their MPs. And we did cover that very thoroughly. So thank you. And thank you to the listeners. If you will go and take some action after hearing this, I would, I would really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I would like to have you back. And I hope that we can have you back with the government having made or just about to make the public apology that you've been working so hard towards. Anybody who doesn't understand this entire maternity home justice project needs to go to your website. They need to, just because the book is riveting, they need to buy and support local bookstores and read Looking for Jane. Shout out for you in terms of how do people connect with you on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram. Let's, Let's have you give all that right now. Yeah, I spend quite a bit of my time on Instagram. There's a really strong uh, book community there. So I'm at Heather Marshall Author. And that's the same handle on Twitter, I believe, or maybe H Marshall Author. Oh, goodness, I should know this. Hang on just one second. <laughs> Twitter is H Marshall Author. There we are. And Instagram is Heather Marshall Author. I'm also on Facebook. Fabulous. Well, this has been a delight. Please come back. 
please keep writing. This was a delight. Thank you so much, Marilyn. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.